Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. Here we are. Back again. Episode number two from the Remote State Horrors podcast. And what is this IRL? (laughs) Is this episode 23? 23 IRL. Wow. Wow. It's when they stopped writing songs about what age you are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It just, you know goes downhill. I'm pretty sure Dashboard I... Confessional has a song that says 23 and it's really sad. So I think oh. it's probably correct in, mm. you know, the feel, but this isn't a sad movie. I think this is a good movie. This is a really good movie. I loved it. You really did? I really did. Yeah. So hello, we're doing Us <laughs> Yes. from 2019. Yes. Written, directed, and produced by Jordan Peele himself of Get Out and- fame. Yes, I I still haven't seen that one yet, but I know that that one will be in our future. And I was so surprised by how much comedic relief was in this movie. I feel like that just comes from Jordan Peele's background as a comedy actor. You know, I feel like he can't do anything without comedy informed. But it was, I don't know, it's different from the comedy we saw in like Teeth or The Faculty because the whole thing is very serious and very artistic and scenic and striking. But the comedy (laughs) is smart. It's really good, but also much needed, I think, with the topic and the content that we're dealing with. So definitely served its purpose and I appreciated it very much. Yeah, obviously, Jordan Peele's a huge horror fan, and not very many directors, one of their first directorial debuts, especially within a genre, make something as, you know, amazing as Get Out was. So this was highly anticipated as his follow-up, kind of in the same way that Ari Aster's Midsummer was very highly anticipated after the release of Hereditary. So a lot of eyes were on Jordan Peele, and he seems to be on a good every two year kick because he just came out with, or he didn't, he didn't direct the new Candyman, but he produced it. I believe. Shut up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That's awesome. Yep. Absolutely. That is one that I'm scared for. I'm scared for that. Yeah. So every two years, he's just been kind of like cranking them out and, you know, they kind of take on different themes, but they all center black creators, black actors, black families, the black experience to a degree. We'll talk about that a little bit when it comes to us. But just to say off the top, Elise and I are two cis white women. So we can say what we want about, you know, this movie and Jordan Peele's discography, but our voices were probably not the ones who should be taking the opinion, take our opinions with a grain of salt. This is just our lively discussion of the movie, but I implore you to seek out black creators and commentators on, you know, their opinions on works such as these. Just because, you know, we're going to do our best and be as mindful as we can to discuss the general themes, but neither of us share the experience of being non-white women in this country. So I'm just saying that off the cuff because we're not claiming to know more or speak on any more than we responsibly can as podcasters and our great responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) The burden. Oh, the burden we live under. But yeah, well said. We're going to do our best. And if you've been listening, you'll know that we do try our best and sometimes we succeed. Yeah, we're both in education. So I think we're both very (laughs) used to being very holistic and tread very carefully in the ways that we have to speak. We like to be very mindful and informed Mm -hmm. in the things that we're talking about. But, you know, we're just coming at this from two viewers who just really enjoyed this experience, did their research. And yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah, here we go. So Us 2019 
We begin with text on a screen. And I I didn't know this about myself until now. I love, <laughs> I love when movies start with text on a screen. I don't know what it is. It feels so amazing. It's context. Exactly. I was about to say, I know exactly what it is. It's context and you're a hope for context. If you've I been following along. Context. <laughs> so this text comes up on the screen that just talks a little bit about how in the United States, there are networks of tunnels thousands of miles long. Some of them are known. Some of them are unknown. We don't really know for sure what exactly goes on in there. Abandoned subway, tunnels, you know, other types of mines, things like that. But it just really sets the scene for unknown activity underground. It made me think of that movie, As Above, So Below. Yes. Yes. That was one of the first horror, not the first, one of the first horror movies, but it was very close to the horror's inception. And I'm like, yo, we should watch this. Not thinking Elise would love it as much as she did. And this was planted the seed of like, we could do this. Cause you know what? I think you're right. That was really good. I really enjoyed that movie. Exactly. And for people who don't know us in real life, Maybe this is speaking to the other people we lived with in undergrad when we tried to get her to watch The Conjuring and we all know what (laughs) that experience was like back in like 2017. And I thought she was going to die. Like I have never seen somebody that viscerally upset from watching a movie. Look, take it from me. You can grow. (laughs) This girl is growing. She is a growing girl. (laughs) And one day we're going to return to The Conjuring and she's going to be so brave. You know what? We should we should do that yeah. this year. Yeah. We can dive into the James Wan universe. He's real good. But anyway, maybe I'm feeling a little overzealous and I should relax. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, after the text on the screen, we are seeing a TV playing a commercial for this event called Hands Across America where it is talking about how across the, (laughs) I tried to read this word earlier and I thought it was so funny because I was like, why didn't they put continental? And I'm like, because that doesn't make any sense. The contiguous, contiguous, it's saying that Hands Across America participated in the contingous, contingous. I can't speak. I'm pretty sure it looks like continue. I've never seen this word in my life. Okay, so it's not just me, right? Contingious. Yeah, and the first thing that comes up is contingious United States. So things sharing a common border. Contiguous. Hold on, wait. Exactly. How the fuck do you say this word? Hold on. Contiguous. It's contiguous. Contiguous. So contiguous. I would fail a fucking spelling bee if someone gave me that word and that was my word. The contiguous means the parts of the United States that share a border. Either way. Oh. Yeah, because I guess you can't count Hawaii unless you really want some people to drown doing hands across America. But anyway, to provide context, because that's what we all love here, and this is going to be relevant throughout the rest of the movie, is this movement or this event. And Jordan Peele kind of took a lot of inspiration from this event to inform the creation of us, which us is spelled U.S., like United States. Coincidence? Mm -hmm. Probably not. 
So according to the Wikipedia, Hands Across America was a public fundraising event held on Sunday, May 25th, 1986, when about 6.5 million people held hands for 15 minutes in an ostensible attempt to form a continuous human chain across the contiguous United States. Each participant donated anywhere between $10 to $35 to reserve their place in line, and the proceeds were meant to be donated to local charities to fight hunger and homelessness and supporting those in poverty. So this is where it gets, you know, a little spicy because obviously a lot of celebrities took hold of this. They wanted to have their place in line. There was music accompanying it, a lot of news coverage. So the movement wanted to make around 50 to $100 million. That's what it sought to make through the, you know, donations of people wanting to stand in line. They actually only ended up making around $34 million. But then after operation fees, only $15 million went toward the agencies, nonprofits, the causes that it sought out to do. And that's not to say that $15 million is not a lot of money, but when you are distributing it between 50 states or like an mm. entire country, it's nothing. Like it's mm. not, it's absolutely nothing. So Damn. thinking about the success or lack thereof of this initiative, you also have to think about who are the recipients of those needs? You know, people who experience poverty, homelessness, hunger, tend to be lower SES folks of color. So this was a big show of lip service, essentially of like, look, we care about the less fortunate, but then the actual putting the money where their mouth is didn't happen because A, they didn't raise the funds and B, all of the funds didn't even go toward the people it sought out to help essentially. So that is the context we need to kind of understand some of the imagery that happens throughout the rest of us. And they're showing this commercial, first of all, to set the time that the main event happened. It was in and around 1986 is when the movie starts us out, but also to just provide some context as to why this event and why this movie. I had no idea something like this ever happened. We weren't alive yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I guess it was off my radar. (laughs) So after who we find out to be Addie watches this TV commercial, or I guess I envisioned it being Addie, but it might not be. It could just be a general TV commercial. We don't actually see a viewer. We cut to a family outing for Addie's birthday. So they are at like a pier. They're on the Santa Cruz boardwalk, which also has its own significance being that The Lost Boys was filmed there, which is another like iconic 80s horror movie. Either way, the Santa Cruz boardwalk kind of in horror lore kind of annotates to this like creepy vibe. Bad things go down there. And Addie's what, like eight, nine? Yeah, eight or nine, ten. I feel like nine or ten, maybe 11, knowing the themes of this movie. Maybe she's turning 11. (laughs) In my mind, any child on screen, you're either three or 14. Like there's no, I know we are measuring anything, measuring anything in between. Like you lost me either way. She looks like she's a preteen, but yes, she's with her parents on the boardwalk. And we see her dad 
win her a prize. Addie chooses to take a tier two prize instead of seeing if her dad can win her a tier three prize. She's like, I'll take the thriller t-shirt. And we can sense a little bit of tension between Addie's mom and dad. Addie's mom saying, oh, she's going to have nightmares because of that t-shirt. She had nightmares when she saw the music video, which also I remember the first time I saw Michael Jackson's thriller music video. I was definitely a little bit freaked out too. And that was not even when it came out, (laughs) as you know. (laughs) So anyway, she gets this thriller t-shirt. It's kind of cute because it's super big on her. They move on. Addie's dad sees this other game he wants to give a try Addie's mom says, let's go to the bathroom. Addie doesn't want to go. So the mom says to her husband, watch Addie while I go to the bathroom. Don't let your eyes off her. He says, yeah, of course. Sure, sure, sure. He's playing his game. Mom goes to the bathroom. Then, of course, does Addie stay put? No, because this is a movie and we got to keep it going. So Addie kind of walks around and she walks onto the beach and she, she almost seems like she's in a trance state. And as she is, you know, kind of like walking to the entrance, like of the sand off the boardwalk, she sees a man holding a sign that says Jeremiah 1111. And of course, it's like a little bit creepy just because I feel like that has end of the world vibes to it. Yeah. And, and she looks really innocent. Like she's carrying a candy apple. She's looking around and I'm trying to figure out what emotion to attach to her. You know, she almost looks envious because she's looking at a lot of friends and groups and couples sharing food when she's looking ahead at her parents and not seeing that level of happiness or that level of connection. Mm. And she doesn't have somebody her own age to really talk with. So you could tell that she's feeling a little neglected and a little lonely, which is what you know, might make her a little more invested in just seeing what else there is to see and, you know, walking Mm. down to the beach and all that kind of stuff. But yes, passes by a very foreboding man. And you looked up what the Jeremiah 1111 means, right? Because we see that a couple times throughout the rest of the movie. We do. So Jeremiah 1111, this is from EW.com. So this is from King James Bible. It reads... Quote, therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. End quote. This feels like the Latin from last week oh. that because you said it out loud, I'm afraid now. <laughs> oh, no, shit. <laughs> You're the haunted one now, bitch. <laughs> no, no, because I'm home alone right now. <laughs> Yeah, not fuzzy feelings, not fuzzy feelings. I felt a certain way about it, and now I feel an extra certain way about it. Thank you, Shay. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. And this quote, (laughs) yeah, Shay's always there to freak me the fuck out. Thanks. (laughs) This quote, definitely with the 1111, you can start seeing themes of duality introduced. And I did read in a couple different places that 1111 does make an appearance a couple different times throughout the movie. I think this is the first obvious time, at least. But as explained to NPR, also in this article cited there, Jordan Peele says, I try to apply this idea of duality to everything in the film. My favorite horror images are the beautiful ones that are subverted. This is why I was drawn to the Stepford Wives and movies like Jaws and The Shining appeal to me, is that when you have something idyllic and beautiful and sort of perfect, that's where the true horror lies. So we sort of have this idea of 1111 make a wish 
What a beautiful time on the clock. That is sort of flipped on its head when we see it in this really brutal scripture from the Bible. Yeah, and the duality obviously doesn't stop just in that. The oh, no. plot of the movie kind of really dives into the idea of duality, which we'll get there. But status check as to where everybody is. Mom's in the bathroom. Dad is playing whack-a-mole. And Addie has, unbeknownst to both of them, has found herself on the beach with her candy apple and her thriller t-shirt. She sees a house of mirrors that kind of looks like it's like a fun house that has an entrance right off the beach. And she feels very entranced and wants to go check it out. She goes in. There's some narration going on, kind of telling a story as she's walking through. She's walking through and she as at first a little trepidatious, but then gets more comfortable until does she hear a noise? Like, what is it that scares her? It makes her run. The lights go out. So the lights go out. She goes to run away, but she ends up smacking right into her own reflection. But as she is looking at her reflection, she realizes that her reflection should be looking back at her, but instead her reflection back is facing toward her and her reflection begins to turn around. Her eyes go wide and then it cuts us back to modern day. So we see adult Addie and she is with her family. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Sorry. Sorry. I forgot. I forgot. So then after that happens, we get a title card opening where we are. I know. Right. How can I fucking forget about this? Because this is like this music is like literally one of my favorite parts of the movie, like this like pan out shot. So Mm. we start out with a very close close up on a white rabbit. And you have this awesome orchestral music that is just very creepy, very foreboding with a lot of vocalizations accompanied to it. And as it pans out, us, the title goes over it. But then as it pulls back, you see that there are just more cages and cages and cages and cages of rabbits being revealed. And you're like, at first, like, rabbits? (laughs) Rabbits? Why rabbits? (laughs) But (laughs) that was not what I was thinking about, but I can see why you were thinking about that. (laughs) Yeah, I found it interesting that, of course, the first rabbit we see is all white rabbit. And then as you pull out, it's mostly white rabbits. But then the one that's positioned directly under the white rabbit that's on the top is a brown rabbit and is one of the only brown rabbits in the shot, kind of Mm. showing that like opposite thing. And then obviously thinking about the themes throughout the rest of the movie. I can go into rabbits a little later because it gives us some spoilers as to what's going to happen. Mm. But I did not realize that the rabbits had thematic significance, which of course they would. It's a Jordan Peele film. Nothing is, you know, for no reason. But rabbits are important to the theme of the film. And then it cuts us back to present day where adult Addie is in the car with her family. And they are arriving at their vacation cabin. I guess what we find out to be in the same area and we meet the family. So Addie has a daughter named Zora, who I would say is about 12 or 13, 14 maybe in the movie, a younger son, Jason, and then her husband, Gabe. So that is the family. So we didn't mention this before. Young Addie is played by Shahadi Wright-Joseph, and she's relatively young, so she doesn't have a long filmography, but what she is in is 2021's show Them, which I don't know if it's an Amazon exclusive or where it is, but it's horrifying. I could not finish it. 
because it is so violent and gratuitous and shut up. Well, the idea is it's about a family in the 50s that own a house in an all white neighborhood and what the white people put that black family through to the point where it's just so hard to watch. And I've seen a lot of like mixed opinions about it, whether it's Mm -hmm. really just kind of like putting black pain on display for like shock factor or whether it is actually just trying to show the, you know, monstrosities that have occurred in that time. There are some supernatural elements. It is a horror show. So there is some scary elements, but she plays the daughter in that and plays it really well. But like I said, wow. I could I couldn't finish it because it was over quarantine and things were dark as it was, and I couldn't put myself I, through it. But it's definitely like she did so really well in that role. I don't think I've ever heard you not being able to finish a movie. It's a, yeah, it was a show, it was a series, and it wasn't for the lack of talent in the cast, but it would just was so viscerally hard to watch at some points. And I think that's the point, right? Like I shouldn't, no one should be comfortable watching it. It's you know, I think it's a slap of reality for a lot of people, but it was also the timing in which it came out when it co-aligned with quarantine. But she is in them. I think that was like her one of her debut roles, and she's also young Nala in 2019's Lion King, the voice. Oh. Of young Nala, but yes, but that is Zora. So that's Zora. That's not young Addie. I got it mixed up. Young Addie is played by Madison Curry, who didn't have any other filmography that I could look at, but that's Zora. So, and she does really well in this movie too. So Zora is Shahadi Wright Joseph. And then the Addie that we are seeing now, the adult Addie is played by Lupita Nyong'o, who is famous for Black Panther and Star Wars and 12 Years a Slave. She's just been rocking it ever since she started acting. I will never forget her first red carpet and the dresses that she wore. Well, the one that she wore to the Golden Globes and then the one that she wore to the Oscars. Mm. I know anyway. nothing of it, but yeah, she's gorgeous. Just, I, I don't I don't watch award shows like I used to, but I remember that award show. Yes, in the car on the way to their I think it's their cabin, like their vacation cabin, because they there's some yeah. dialogue talking about I think how it's they like her family's cabin. Because she okay. finds like old pictures there and like remembers herself dancing at one point. So it's been in the family for a little while at least. Right. So they get to the house, they're all kind of settling in. Just some characteristics about the kids real quick. Jason, again, he's like eight, maybe something like that. He wears a mask a lot, which is funny because Jason Voorhees wears a mask a lot. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, that's just funny. Okay. Okay. But like that, that works. He wears this werewolf mask a lot and kind of is like a little bit of a prankster, but also quieter, like the more reserved of the two. And then Zora is just like your typical tween who's got her head buds in her ears and she's on a track team and she doesn't seem to have like that many friends that she speaks of, but she's texting a lot and all that kind of stuff. So she just kind of seems like your typical, like, don't look at me, teenager. And once we establish the family, we have a flashback. Back to the 80s, young Addie is sitting outside of a therapist's office where her parents are sitting talking to the therapist about Addie. She's kind of sitting at a table with like some toys, blocks, like a waiting area. And we're hearing the doctor telling the parents that it's possible she has post-traumatic stress. Apparently, she hasn't spoken at all since she emerged from the Hall of Mirrors on the beach. We see the tension continuing between the parents. Mom is really pissed. She told dad to keep an eye on Addie. He said she was only gone for 15 minutes. She said, but what could have happened in that 15 minutes? 
So we just have this rising tension and also realizing that Addie has had some adverse reactions to what happened to her in the Hall of Mirrors. Yes. And this is all sparked because her husband, Gabe, wants to go to Santa Cruz and she is pretty adamant that she doesn't want to go to Santa Cruz because she doesn't have good memories there. Doesn't seem to like the idea. She's uncomfortable. She says, there's weirdos at that beach. I'm not going. So again, perhaps talking about the man that she saw when she was a child. Because at this point, we don't know what happened to Addie in the mirror house. So really, it's up for interpretation as to what actually happened to her that day. So she's not really wanting to, but Gabe guilt trips her into agreement. Yeah, she says, fine, but we leave before dark. So she eventually concedes. Before they go, Addie's looking around the house, kind of seeing pictures of her. She used to do ballet as a kid, flashes back to some ballet shots. She's very unwilling to look in the mirror after her incident, which is, you know, perhaps showing that certain things have happened in the meantime. And before they leave, you hear Gabe shouting from outside and the family kind of rushes outside to see what happened. But (laughs) Gabe just bought a boat called the Crawdaddy that he is very excited about. And he is also very excited to show his friend, Josh, who from context clues, you can presume makes more money than him. So Gabe kind of bought this shitty boat it kind of stops and starts and does what it wants as a status symbol so that he has something to talk about with his friend josh when he meets him and his family at the beach at santa cruz i didn't even catch that it was called the crawl daddy it's called the crawl daddy it's very funny (laughs) also there's some like really funny dialogue when they're en route to santa cruz where Zora just kind of pops up and is like did you know there's fluoride in the water that the government uses to control our minds I guess no one cares about the end of the world. Why don't you just tell us what to expect? And it's just kind of like, all right, conspiracy, Kathy, where the fuck do you come from? She's very nihilistic, which I feel like younger generations are becoming more and more so. (laughs) And also more clinical because then Jason pipes in with kiss my anus, Zora. (laughs) Yes, I love that line. I laughed out loud. Something about the word anus gets me. They arrive at Santa Cruz and we see an ambulance taking away none other than Jeremiah 1111. In the future. We're from the past. That is crazy, crazy, crazy. He is definitely deceased. And we can see Addie is definitely freaked out. And even without the context, who wouldn't be, right? A very unsettling thing to see. Eventually, they arrive at the beach, and we have Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss, who play Josh and Kitty. And I have not seen Elizabeth Moss in any horror roles. This is the first time I saw her in a horror movie, and I thought she did a really good job. And same with Tim Heidecker. I've only ever seen him in, like, really dumb YouTube videos. (laughs) And I really enjoyed seeing them in the roles that they were cast in. I don't know anything about the guy, but Elizabeth Moss actually was in the remake of The Invisible Man. I think it was 2020 remake of Invisible Man. She was incredible in it, from what I understand. I really want us to cover it eventually because it's just really good from what I hear. So she's in that. And then obviously, I think everyone's association as of recently is The Handmaid's Tale, which you could argue is just a very long horror movie in itself. Yeah, damn. Yeah, damn. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But Elizabeth Moss is Kitty. 
is probably the most stereotypical rich white woman that (laughs) could be written. She is talking to Addie about her Botox that she most recently got. She's on her like fourth wine spritzer of the afternoon while (laughs) Addie is not indulging in anything. She's giving off a lot of I hate my husband vibes, just really trying to engage Addie in some girl talk. And Addie's just kind of like not having it. Addie's even saying like, I'm just not that good at talking as to say, like, can you shut the fuck up? But Elizabeth Moss is doing her damnedest to be as annoying as possible. And I I loved it. So at this point, Jason has to use the bathroom. I love the moment he says he has to go to the bathroom. And Josh and Kitty have two twin daughters who are probably about 14 or 15. And they say at the same exact time, why don't you just pee in the ocean? And then they say jinx. And then they say jinx again. And they have this whole bit where they're saying the same thing at the same time in true twin telepathy as I imagine it would be. But finally, Jason, he goes to the bathroom. And of course, audience members are on the edge of their seat because still on the beach is the Hall of Mirrors that was there all those years ago. Yes. And there's even a lot of horror references just occurring on this beach, right? Jason's wearing a Jaws t-shirt. Or a Jaws tank top. And the two girls saying things at the same time, the twins, is very much like the Shining twins. They even say to Zora at one point, are you going to come play with us? Oh, that's shit. like That's like their main quote in The Shining is, come play with us, Danny. But instead it was like, Zora, come play with us. But yeah, they're teasing Jason. They're not really including Zora. Jason goes off to potty while those two cartwheel their way down the beach because they just really fucking love to do some cartwheels. And that was like probably like the most realistic, I could say, of like annoying teenage girls. Like once you know how to do like a round off or something, that's all they do for a little bit. Like they're doing handstands, doing cartwheels on the beach. I mean, that's not to say you can't do what you want to fucking do. But like I saw that and I literally saw like my sister and her friends in my backyard. (laughs) I was always so jealous. I can't do any fun beach tricks. So good for them, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But Jason gets out of the bathroom and when he leaves the porta potty, he sees what appears to be the man from the ambulance still standing on the beach with his arms outstretched and his hands dripping blood. Yeah, none other than Jeremiah 1111. And you may be asking, how is that possible? He was dead. That is also what I was asking myself (laughs) at that point. (laughs) (laughs) But because Jason's been gone for a little long and Addie is so on edge because she is back on the beach in which her incident occurred, her mama bear instincts kick into high gear. She goes screaming down the beach trying to find him, but that she does end up finding him and they go home. Once they're home, there's a lot of dialogue that establishes that Gabe is jealous of Josh's wealth. The fact that Josh has a backup generator and Josh has a better boat and Josh has fishing gear and all these types of things. And I think it's important to point out that, like, I think in any other movie, it would have been set up to presume that if you are comparing a white family that is expressively rich that the the foil of that would be a black family that is poor. But the Wilsons, you know, this family are not poor. They bought a boat. They have their own vacation house. Zora has an iPod that she's playing with the entire time. And Jason seems to have toys aplenty and things of that nature. The movie at large is about class 
and privilege and things of that nature. But from what I read uh, in interviews with Lupita Nyong'o and Jordan Peele, the fact that the main family, the Wilsons, are Black doesn't have to do with the storyline. Like, it's a decision that Jordan Peele made because he wants to center Black narratives. Black people can be in roles that are talking about things other than Blackness and are focused on other things other than Blackness. And there's a more nuanced quote that I can bring up a little bit later. But that foil that's there, it could be any two dads talking about who's got the better grill in their backyard and things of that nature. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh Uh-huh. 100%. And also like the idea of like wanting more, wanting more, wanting more, which I think is also important to see these two families in these really like fortunate circumstances still feeling is that jealousy towards one another. And, And, you know, where's the line for having enough, you know? Back at the house, Addie and Jason have a tender moment. She just explains that she was scared and the son understands it's a nice little moment. And it's interrupted when Jason says, look, it's 11-11. We look at the clock. It's 11-11. Anybody else would be pleased to make a wish. (laughs) But we know in this movie, 11-11 means something a little different. And it definitely freaks Addie out. She also finds the picture that he drew. Yes. As she is leaving after their discussion, she sees the picture like in a third party view, looking at the back of what would be Jason's head, looking at Jeremiah 1111 on the beach with his arms outstretched. She says, Jason, who is this? He said, just some guy. So he doesn't really think too much of it. But again, something that feeds into Addie's rising anxiety. So back in the bedroom with her husband... (laughs) (laughs) who is so funny to me, Gabe. He's definitely, you can see, trying to like get some sexy time, right? He like lays on the bed, like presents himself (laughs) to his wife. (laughs) But she is clearly occupied. She finally squeaks out that she wants to leave. Gabe does not understand. He's like, we are on vacation. How could you want to leave? But she finally comes clean to him, which we see for the first time about the experience she had as a child when she got lost in the Hall of Mirrors and saw a girl that was not her own reflection. Yeah, she says that she feels like a black cloud is over her whenever that she's there. She hasn't felt right. She feels as though that reflection is still coming for her and that she's catching up to her. And she feels as though like that feeling and that she's getting closer. And she's not wrong. (laughs) No, she's not. (laughs) But Gabe is trying to make light of it, you know, is trying to be like, so the mirror girl is after you. Like, again, just trying to make light of the situation. But then the lights go out. And again, that's what signified when shit began to go down in the Hall of Mirrors when she was a kid. Oh, yeah. The lights went out. And then Jason appears in their doorway and is like, there's a family in our driveway. (laughs) No, no. There is a family of four. You don't really see anything, but you see their silhouettes and they are holding hands at the end of the driveway. They're backlit. So you can't really see any distinctive features about them, except the fact that they are wearing red. Of course, everybody is freaked out. But Gabe, he's man of the house. He's going to go out to see what's up. So he goes out. He tries to talk to them, asks them kindly, who are you? Please get off our property. They do not respond. They just hit him with a wall of silence. And it is so unsettling. So he gets freaked out, goes back inside, grabs a metal bat and tries again. So this time he's much more aggressive. He starts to approach them. And then suddenly 
the family breaks formation. We see the two smaller figures sort of scurry, one to the left, one to the right in the bushes. And we see big figure man coming towards Gabe. So he turns around and runs back inside and shuts the door and locks it. Also want to bring significance to the choice of weapon because big bat energy. Am I right? You know? Oh shit. Yes. Like, okay, listen. Cause just like Gabe is the man of the house, right? And he sees, sees a threat and he essentially needs to swing his dick around. So you see that, you know, his weapon of choice is like, I mean, what does the end of a bat look like? Like, come on. It's just like a big, a dick, a big dick. Also like to use it, you know, you need strength and aim to use it. So it's, it's like a very artistic weapon, I guess. I mean, that's why slashers, no, no slasher, you know, uses a fucking gun. They use things that they need to be up close and personal to do stuff with. So Addie has the kids. She's kind of like backing them into a corner, trying to like, you know, protect them. They're trying to close all the windows. And as they're closing the windows, they kind of see that the tethers are there waiting for them. And I'm going to keep be calling them the tethers because that is language that we're going to be using. But this other family is kind of there. But the big one ends up. Well, he unlocks it because there's a key under the mat. Right. Right. (laughs) And Gabe is like, what kind of white shit? Because there's a key under the mat. And honestly, yeah, what is that about? Stop leaving keys under the mat. People do that. And it's crazy to me. That's what a key ring is for, you fool. Carry it around with you. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. You're right, but you're right. He opens the door and from all different corners, they all end up breaking in. Someone comes through a window. Someone goes through the door. Someone follows the large one in. And I believe they incapacitate Gabe almost immediately because they slam him in the side of his knee and he just buckles under it. So he's crawling away and they end up cornering the family all on the couch. And then this family of four crowds in front of the fireplace and looks at them and one of them lights a fire and with the illuminated light you begin to see that the family four are exact copies of the four of the wilsons that we've come to know at this point and addy asks who are you people and or someone asks who are you people and jason says it's us well he says we're americans oh that's yeah that's what the tether says yeah Which is a really striking quote. And one of the quotes I think that stood out to me the most, if you weren't sure what this was going to be about, clearly, you know, with that response that this is some kind of commentary about America. In terms of appearance, they're all wearing red jumpsuits and carrying scissors or like just really like decorative shears, which again, the level of duality, two blades coming together to form one. Oh, Oh, shit. Yeah. I forget where I read that. That's not my own personal thought. I never would have thought about that. Also, really gorgeous shears. I would love a pair for myself. I would feel so great using them. (laughs) They're definitely like gold, too. Yeah. Like, they're really striking. And they're all wearing one leather glove, which Mm -hmm. very Michael Jackson of them. Mm Mm-hmm. They all have names. So they all are copies of one another, but they also have names that they are referred to both in the movie, but then also on the Wikipedia page. So Addie's tether, Addie's copy is called Red K. 
Gabe's copy is called Abraham. Jason's copy is called Pluto. And Zora's copy is called Umbre. And Red kind of goes through and introduces all of them while talking through pretty much what they are. So she goes into a story of like, once there was a girl in her shadow, while the girl ate warm and delicious food, the shadow ate raw rabbits. Wabbits are back. The the girl met a prince. The shadow met Abraham. It didn't matter that she didn't like Abraham, but because that's what her person had met, that's what she had to do. It didn't matter if she loved him. When one gave birth, the other one gave birth to a monster. So you're really beginning to see that Red has been living Addie's life almost in like the upside down to use a term from Stranger Things. In this parallel universe or in this underground way, she has had to live the life that Addie lives just without everything, without comfort, without sunshine, without the sky, without the actual emotions and experiences of being a human being, she has been going through the motions as her opposite or as her tethered. And she goes to explain that we are tethered together. We are two parts of the same soul, but you are the have and I am the have not pretty much. And then Red, who is clearly in charge here, spreads everybody out. So first she has Abraham take care of Gabe. So Abraham takes Gabe outside. Then she sends or tells rather Zora to run. Umbre goes outside, gives her a little bit of a head start until she can't see her in the streetlights, then starts chasing after her. And then Red tells Jason and Pluto to go play. And then she is left alone with Addie in the living room while Addie is handcuffed to the table. She had to do that a little earlier. And we kind of continue in this pattern. Red is alone with Addie for a while, but because of certain circumstances, Red ends up having to leave the room. So we're kind of like spliced in these scenes where Pluto is playing with Jason, but we know that they have gone into the closet that locks only from the outside if the door is shut. And we had seen that earlier in the movie. So Pluto and Jason are quote unquote playing Jason can't get this magic trick to work that he's been trying to do the whole movie. Pluto is able to do it. He lights this, I guess, match, but it's not a match. It's kind of like, it looks like the same magic trick that Jason is trying to do, but he's just successful doing it. And he eventually removes the mask that he's wearing, which looks really close to what like a burn victim would wear to help the like burn scars heal on their face, which is appropriate because when he removes his mask and Jason reveals his wolf mask, you see that Pluto has burn scars on the lower half of his mouth. So I took that as, so I think it's a lighter. Like, I think he's just trying to light a lighter in like a weird way. And I took an impress. Yeah. Yeah. But I took that as like, while Jason kept doing the trick so close to his face upstairs. Oh shit. That's why Pluto looks the way he does is because every time that the trick failed for Jason, it burned Pluto, which is why he's, his face is disfigured and, and all that kind of stuff. I didn't think about that till right now. But I was like, oh, why would his face be burned? And I'm like, well, because this dude keeps holding a lighter so close to his face, but he's not the one feeling the pain. It's his tether. Oh, my God. I even I thought about the fact that like Jason's mask is only like a front covering mask. And if he's holding the lighter, like the heat would be able to go in through the bottom part of that mask. Like there's nothing covering like his chin. It's only the front of his face. So that is where the the heat and the flames would go. I also think it's something to do with that. 
Jason likes magic. So Pluto likes destruction or, you know what I mean? Because they even said that like, oh, like, you know, Pluto's a little bit of a pyro, but it's just like, (laughs) what's the opposite of, you know, a magician, someone who wants to like create something out of nothing and wonder than someone who wants to destroy everything and burn something down into nothing from something. I don't know. I I, want to read too much into that, but I would say that visually Pluto and Jason are the most at odds with one another in terms of like, they don't look as close as the other tethers are, but I'm thinking that that has something to do with the mask, obviously. But anyway, Mm. my thoughts. Love them. Love them. Also important. It's also revealed in this closet scene that Pluto mirrors Jason. So when Jason raises his arm, Pluto raises his arm, not in a sense that it's controlling, but in a sense that they are mirrors of one another. And that comes into play pretty significantly later on. So somehow through a moment of chaos, Jason is able to lock Pluto in the closet and run away. But of course, Pluto instantly starts banging on the door, which cues Red to go and inspect what is going on. So Addie is in the living room alone for the first time, and she is able to get her... (laughs) feet on a fire poker to try to pick the lock on her handcuffs. And while this is happening, we have some rising tension with Zora and Ombre because Ombre has caught up to Zora. There's a scene, a classic like car scene, which I don't know why these scenes are so scary to me. Like somebody's on one side of the car and somebody's on the other side of the car. And it's not only like having to worry about like, will they go right? Will they go left? It's like, will they go under or above? Like there's so many different directions that you're not sure who's going to come from what direction. And just when, you know, we realize Umbre is on top of the car, it looks like she's going to descend upon Zora and kill her. Some unknowing neighbor stumbles out in his robe, tells Ombre to come here. She does. Zora takes that as her cue to run away. And we see the neighbor killed while Zora gets another head start to run away. So all of these scenes are happening simultaneously. Also, Gabe ends up by the dock. I mean, this part of the movie is really intense. Gabe ends up by the dock. Abraham follows. They end up like fighting on the boat. So all of these things are happening. Basically, they kind of come together when Gabe, in the struggle that he has with Abraham, is finally able to beat Abraham when, in a brilliant comedic callback to Gabe banging on the motor of his boat to make it work, (laughs) because for some reason that is how it seems like boat motors work, he does that, it starts the motor, and Abraham is mangled in the propellers, and he is dead. So Gabe gets back on the boat and starts driving it to shore. I said, I thought of you, Shay, because I was like, that's some Scooby-Doo shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's a lot of, like, and I know that this is very intense, but it's so, I don't know, like, all of these very different physical things happening at once almost felt comedic. Because there was comedy woven in there, like with that neighbor, it was a little bit funny and the banging on the motor to get the propeller to work that ended Abraham. Like, I don't know how to explain it. Like, it was so serious, but there was like some really funny things woven in there. It was really strange. It was very smart, I think is the word I'm looking for. Where is the crossover between funny and scary? Sometimes it's just being smart. (laughs) Yeah, I like that quote. (laughs) I I like that quote a lot. (laughs) But yes, all of this kerfuffle ends with Gabe circling the boat back around to the dock and picking up Zora, Jason, and a very recently freed Addie. 
they all get on the boat while they see Red, Umbre, and Pluto looking at them from the dock. But at this point, Abraham is dead. Abraham's out of the question. So that is Gabe's tether. You do see while they're on the boat that Abraham doesn't speak and none of the other tethers speak except for Red. Red seems to be the only one that can communicate. And even when she does, it's very raspy and very tried for her to speak. But you do hear vocalizing with another tethered offshore. So you can tell that they, I guess, can communicate with one another to some degree. And that kind of clues you off that these four are not the only four that exist. And we come to find that out fairly quickly. We are now taken to Josh and Kitty's much nicer vacation home on the lake where Josh is drinking whiskey and doesn't want to be bothered. And Kitty is trying to convince him to check for a noise that they hear outside because their backup generator kicked on. And so something must be wrong. There is some tried dialogue between the two of them of like, you worried woman, blah, blah, blah. I'm just trying to have a good time on my vacation, yada, yada, yada. But as the camera pans from Josh and Kitty up to the twins that are standing in the balcony to see what's been going on, you see very suddenly that standing next to each twin is their tethered version of themselves and they are all stabbed. While Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys plays very loudly. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah, very creepy. And the twins, honestly... The untethered versions are creepy. Imagine like four creepy twins. It was just creepy. And they all die, basically, right? Not before <laughs> not before <laughs> Elizabeth Moss is trying to get help and she tries to ask Ophelia, which I guess is their version of Alexa, mm. to call the police. But instead of calling the police, the Siri plays fuck the police and <laughs> adds to some more awesome comedy as Elizabeth Moss is killed further and yes the entire family has been killed by their respective tethered counterpart and it's just in time for the wilson family to arrive seeking help from their friends addy knocks on the door and the tethered version of josh opens the door in his red jumpsuit but now wearing josh's silky robe They're clearly having a good time in there. And then they take Addie and drag her inside. And that forces the other three family members to jump into action to try to save Addie again. Yes. So Gabe tries to handle Josh's tether outside. And Zora and Jason go into the house after Addie. They climb the stairs. Zora arms herself with a golf club, which, of course, that's a rich person's weapon of choice. You got to have golf clubs laying around. And in the bedrooms at the end of the hall, you see the tethered twins cartwheeling. So you know that they're close. And that's where I loved that this came back. Like the way that these twins attack them was like beautifully choreographed, in my opinion. One pops out in front of Zora, she whacks her and she goes off the balcony. And every time I think of a balcony or I think of railing, I think of our Better Watch Out episode when you made the statement that the more railing there is invisible in the house, the richer they are. (laughs) Shit, I don't even remember that. (laughs) Like you said that and that's like, because I think we had watched two back-to-back movies where there's just a shit ton of railing. And oh, yeah. that that means they're rich. But anyway, she sends one Yo, over I the stand ra- by that. <laughs> 
she sends one over the railing and then the other one goes from a headstand into an attack. I fucking love this where she's just like, you know, Zora's looking around and this tether is standing upside down on her hands and flips her body over and knocks Zora over. And I was just like, beautiful. I loved that. That was amazing. Like, I love these twins. (laughs) They're creepy. But that makes sense that I would think they're creepy and you would love them. That is pretty on brand for us. (laughs) They were fantastic. But this kicks Zora into high gear and she beats the living shit out of the one that's still upstairs where we can presume that she is dead while the other one has fallen over the side of the balcony. And then we get some close-ups of Elizabeth Moss being Elizabeth Moss. Yes. So this is when tethered Elizabeth Moss is sitting at Kitty's mirror And she has a tube of lip gloss and she is slowly applying the lip gloss and taking her time to really put it on evenly and look at herself in the mirror and she smiles at herself and it's kind of like touching. (laughs) And you you see scars on her face. So you really Mm. see that like that is like the product of Elizabeth Moss's like plastic surgery that she did and like because she had that Botox treatment. I never even that's crazy yo as above so below am I right (laughs) I am shook you we see in the background that Addie is shackled to the bed and she tries to free herself and Elizabeth Moss goes and almost kills her but instead of stabbing her she starts cutting her cheek very Joker style like cutting her cheek down to her smile, which, or like at least, I don't know if she's cutting herself or if she's just tracing the lines. And that's kind of like showing that Kitty had work done and and things of that nature, but has a chance to kill her and doesn't until Zora and Jason come in and kind of incapacitate Kitty and free their mom once again. And let me say, I wrote down that the kids remind me in this moment of Kevin McAllister because they are like really fearless going into this. And really shortly after I wrote down that note, <laughs> Gabe says something about this being some home alone shit. And I was like, oh my God. like, yes, I was picking up on those vibes. So yeah, basically the family is triumphant once again. The tethered family friends are incapacitated or killed basically. And now the Wilson family is kind of just sitting in their house and regrouping and trying to figure out what to do next. Meanwhile, throughout the film, they've tried calling 911, but it's always been busy. And then they finally turn on a news station while they're bandaging their wounds. And the news is showing that all of the tethers are attacking. There are reports saying that they have been coming from the sewers. They are all in red with shears. And when they are done killing their tethered counterpart, they start holding hands. And in the news shot, you see that there are just like lines of tethered people holding hands in the street and creating this human chain, very much like Hands Across America. But instead, this is like the lowly counterpart of Hands Across America. These these were the people that were supposed to be helped, but they weren't and things of that nature. The family starts having a disagreement as to what to do from here. Gabe is in my train of thought where it's like, Listen, we have food, we have shelter, we have a backup generator. Obviously, the world's going to shit out there. We should stay here. 
And for some reason, and this is where I get a little confused and it might have something to do with the twist later, but Addie is very adamant that they need to take the car and go. Like they need to go to Mexico, which I don't know if she just doesn't think, which I guess is true because if this was like a United States experiment, there probably isn't tethers in Mexico. This seems to be a United States problem. She's like, we need to escape. We need to get out of here. They fight about it. And Addie ends up winning. They decide that they are going to take the car that is parked at the family's house and they are going to try to get out. And before they do so, we have a moment. Addie forgets the keys. She goes back inside. Of course, surprise, one of the twins isn't actually dead. We have another fight scene and Jason comes back in the house to see what's up with his mom right in time to see his mother totally stab the shit out of one of the twins, which I can imagine is pretty wild to see your mother exhibit such aggression. But she gets the keys. They go back out and they drive away from the house. As they're driving away from the house, Zora wants to drive. And she's like, I have a learner's permit. I also have the highest kill count. So I get to drive. And then Oh, start- yeah. And they also just start comparing numbers. She's like, well, I killed this one. I killed this one. No, actually, you <laughs> didn't kill that one because I just killed that one again. I have the highest <laughs> kill count. But it was funny little banter. But as they're doing this, Umbre shows back up. She is at the end of the street and is kind of like running toward them. So Zora floors it. Umbre runs up the top of the car, tries stabbing through the ceiling, stabbing through the front windshield. And they kind of have one of those classic Umbre's on the front of the car. Zora's flooring it. And then she breaks and Umbre flies off of the car and into the woods. But Addie has enough experience at this point to know that she shouldn't assume that that untethered is dead. So she gets out of the car and marches into the woods to make sure that the business is done. And she finds Umbre in a tree sort of hanging where she landed, like in this sort of mangled position. And Umbre is sort of laughing. You can tell she's certainly incapacitated. She's not going anywhere. And we kind of have this strange, tender moment between Addie and Umbre where Addie just kind of like looks at this untethered being and and sort of like takes pity on her and then just watches her slowly die. Like she doesn't have to even like do anything. She just kind of stands by as Umbre ceases to be and then she turns around and walks away and it's it's strange because it is touching and like you can see I guess Addie as a mother like we can assume in that moment or we do assume that she's kind of taking pity on this being that looks exactly like her daughter and this being regardless of being so aggressive is a child still regardless so it's an interesting scene and then we move on And it's morning (laughs) by the time we kind of come across this family next. And they are driving through, I guess, like the part of town that is closer to the beach. And what are they trying to do? Get to their car? This is, okay, this is legitimately what I wrote down, too. I was like, why is Addie going back to Santa Cruz? I don't understand what the motivation of them I don't know whether they have to go through Santa Cruz, but then why do you have to drive all night? Because you just did a day trip there. Like, what are the optics of this situation? I think we were to assume that perhaps they had been fighting for survival all through the night. And now what would have been maybe like a 20 minute drive, the sun has happened to rise in that time. That could make sense. Either way, I don't know whether they just have to drive through Santa Cruz to get to where they need to be or what. I don't know the geography of California beaches. Sorry. And I didn't look it up either. (laughs) But... (laughs) We are not West Coast people. We are not. 
as they are trying to get through the street, they see that the street is blocked and it is their own car that is on fire. And of course, who is in front of it? But Pluto, the pyro, has set their car on fire in the middle of the street. And he is just kind of standing there and taunting them. And again, Addy gets out of the car. Gabe protests, but Gabe's leg is still very much injured. And so she goes to check the situation out and walks up to him. But as she's doing that, again... I'm just really diving into this, like Jason's a magician and this guy's a trickster thing because Jason is the one who realizes he set a trap up for us because a magician has to know all the tricks. So, oh, so as Addie's walking up, you see that there is a line of gasoline or what is presumably gasoline leading to where the other car has stopped and fully intends on blowing the family up. But as Addie's trying to stop Pluto from dropping the match, Jason gets out of the car and starts with his arms outstretched, stepping backwards and backwards and backwards. And because Pluto mirrors him in probably one of the most visually striking scenes of the film, Pluto backs up into the fire and perishes in the fire, much to Addie's dismay. Again, I don't know if it's because it's an image of her child or a spoiler that is yet to come, but Pluto perishes. Also... As Jason is backing up, backing up, backing up, he's not really paying attention to the fact that Red is standing sort of crunched down next to a car nearby. And she is, while Addie is distracted by Pluto in that tragic end, she doesn't see that Red snatches Jason and kidnaps him away until we realize that that has happened. And Red has to jump into hot pursuit to try to get Jason back. Yes, and Addie does this by taking the initiative to go through the abandoned boardwalk. She sees the tethers along the beach, standing along the beach in the red jumpsuits where Jeremiah 1111 makes another appearance. And she enters the house of mirrors and as she opens the door, a bunny hops out. So Mm. more bunnies. Yeah, more bunnies. And so she makes her way through the Hall of Mirrors and then goes downstairs into what looks like a boiler room. But then she finds another door. She goes down, 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 down. Eventually, it seems like she's following a rattling sound of sorts. So it's not like she's just kind of like guessing. Like there's a sound that she is following. We come across an escalator, which feels very out of place in your average boiler room. So she goes down the escalator. Eventually, after all of these levels, she comes to this long hallway full of doors. It looks kind of like a big school hallway or like a prison. Very kind of like a sterile long hallway with doors of such. And we see bunnies everywhere. Yes. So on the rabbits, I pulled from IMDb trivia for this. So I don't know exactly where it comes from, but the presence of white rabbits in the hall mirrors and the red jumpsuits worn by the tethered are all references to Alice in Wonderland. The hall of mirrors in particular represent through the looking glass while the red suits represent the red queen, the villain of the story. And then obviously the bunnies. And then rabbits are also often seen as a symbol of prosperity. Ironically, rabbits are the main food source for the tethered who, compared to their above-ground counterparts, have nothing. So here they are doing their best to try to have, like, what our equivalent, I guess, would be of a good steak. But for them, it's rabbit. Because that's supposed to be, like, what the rich get or what the haves have are these rabbits. But it's also to the degree that rabbits are also common testing animals. And that kind of has to do with some things that get revealed later. But anyway, 
I was also thinking that like bunnies, whenever I think of bunnies, I think of like reproduction because bunnies have sex all the time. Yeah. (laughs) And the tethered are like copies of the people above. So like, I guess kind of this idea of like reproduction or like creation. Cloning, perhaps. (laughs) Yeah. But as Addie finds all of this, Zora and Gabe are still above ground. They happen upon an ambulance where they themselves see the chain of people holding hands in the red jumpsuits. And Gabe says the quote, this looks like some kind of fucked up performance art. And I found that's very, <laughs> that's very funny because that's exactly what Hands Across America was. It wasn't actually, you know, an attempt to help mm. those who needed it. And that's not to say that no one benefited from the $15 million that it actually made. But the focus ended up being more on the celebrities and the music and the commercials and people saying and the T-shirts and people saying that they did it. And a performance art of like, we are all homeless. We are all hungry. We are all one you know what I mean? It didn't do anything. It was just a way for the United States to say, we care about this problem. We're going to do something very public about it, but we're not actually going to address it. Wow. Wow. Okay. So Zora and Gabe are fine in the up area, even though they're surrounded by other untethered, the untethered are standing like in that line. They're pretty fixed there. And also I realized that I guess Jeremiah 1111 must've been the first link Like, remember when we saw him and he was standing with both hands out? He must have been the first link waiting for other people to come grab his hands. I did read, too, that in the movie, you don't see any tethered kill anybody else besides their tethered person. Because Zora does attack the neighbor, but she stabs him in the leg. And I didn't notice that when we watched it, but I read that later. And if you really think about it, the only time that a person is attacked by somebody else who's not their tether is when one of the twins goes after Addie. But there could also be a reason for that. Why Addie, of all people? You know what I mean? Right. Oh, very interesting. So once they've killed their person, they take their place in line, you know? Right. That makes sense. It's like... They distributed the work evenly among them. They're all responsible for just one. (laughs) It's it's a a utilitarian effort. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So Addie finds Red in a classroom. She has her back to the door that Addie enters through. There is a chalk outline of many sort of people holding hands in like cookie cutter outline sort of way. And Red is holding some red cutouts of the same thing that we see sketched on the board. And we find out more context about the tethered. So Red shares that the humans created the tethered as a man-made creation to control those above, but it didn't work. And eventually all of the tethered were left abandoned in the tunnels below the United States all over the country. And we watch this interesting flashback that alternates between what we have already seen take place in the 1980s on Addie's birthday above and then what happens below. So we kind of see how above, you know, young Addie was living her life with her parents on the night of her birthday. But below, there's a lot of, it looks to me like a strange acting workshop. There's a lot of pantomiming going on. The tethered are using the hallways and different rooms to sort of be acting out and mimicking what is going on above. So you see that it's not a direct reflection. It's 
you know, one life is a full life with decisions and things to see and things to do. And the other life takes place in these sterile hallways, pantomiming, you know, not fully living that experience. And of course, this is deep underground, so there's no sunlight or anything like that. And we sort of see how the tethered operate when they're mimicking what's going on up above, which is really unsettling. It's also awesome because all of this exposition is given in a split diopter shot. Which is essentially like you see Red's face really close up in the screen and you see Addie standing behind her. And if you think about it, that's an inversion of what the entire movie has been because it's the idea that Red has always been Addie's shadow. Red has always been beneath Addie and Addie's always been in the foreground and Red's always been in the background, whether it's been owned to her or not. But instead, you're getting this split diopter shot, which is half of the screen, you're only seeing a close-up of Red's face, while in the background, you're seeing Addie in the background just kind of, like, standing there and, like, listening to her and, you know, understanding and learning, maybe for the first time, like, what their situation is. And there's also a, a bit of dialogue that I wrote down, too, where she's pretty much saying that Red is the person who led the rebellion of the untethered to rise up and have their turn in the sunshine. It was her that really was the one who mobilized everyone. They prepared for years so that people could take ownership of their own existence. And she said, I didn't just need to kill you. I needed to make a statement for the whole world to see, which again, Hands across America. They couldn't just help the fucking people. They needed to make a skeptical for the whole world to see. So we have this really epic fight. We've, you know, heard reference throughout the entire movie that Addie used to be a dancer when she was younger. And so in this very choreographed fight, this almost like graceful, artistic, very sort of like movement-oriented fight, we see Addie and Red go at each other. And Addie is able to anticipate, or I'm sorry, Red rather, is able to anticipate a lot of Addie's moves. And Addie is becoming increasingly more and more and more frustrated because where we have seen her... As a very clever fighter throughout the movie, she cannot match Red because Red is anticipating her moves. And this instrumental during this time is sort of a classical version of I Got Five on It, which is a song we hear earlier in the movie, but now we're just hearing it again in a little bit of a different context. I didn't notice that, but the person I was watching this with noticed that, which I thought was pretty cool. Finally, kind of in a little bit of a disappointing way, I might add, I don't know if Red gets too cocky But she doesn't anticipate Addie's final move where she is able to stab Red in the gut with the fire poker. Yeah. And doesn't even stop there. As Red falls, Addie kind of uses her shackled wrists to choke her out as well. And you hear a lot of gurgling and, you know, you really see Red die very slowly and is in this moment. And you see hints of this every time that Addie engages in violence, but Addie starts screaming and vocalizing and screeching very much like Abraham had in the beginning of the movie. And this kind of confirms the twisty twist, which is when Addie was a child and in the mirror room, her mirrored self choked Addie, brought her down to the surface and switched places with her. So the real Addie has been read this entire time, which is why she can talk and why she talks a lot about God throughout her little speeches. She knows what God is and kind of can understand and knew about the hands across America thing and was able to lead other people. 
where the Addie that came back out that night was actually her tethered version, which is why she was silent. She didn't learn how to speak and she's not good at talking. And she really got to live on the other side and live that life. And the real Addie, Red, wanted to come back up and take back the life that was stolen from her. That is such an incredible plot twist. If the movie wasn't good without that, this whole blurring of the good versus evil line is, I don't know, it's its really striking. And I feel like I'm going to be thinking about this movie for a really long time. Addie giggles and laughs. She kind of knows that she won or the ad, you know, the Addie that we've known throughout the entire movie, which we now know is her tethered version, but who we know have known to be Addie this entire time finds Jason and Jason's looking at her very suspiciously, kind of knowing that like, you ain't right. There's something up. And it's kind of the same suspicion that he gave her when she killed the first twin because she was screeching and vocalizing during that as well. But Jason's kind of like, I don't know if I like this anymore. I don't know if I like you, mom. But the family lives. The whole family lives. Mm -hmm. The original family we see lives, which is awesome. I didn't know that. I thought somebody was going to die and they didn't. And I was so happy. (laughs) (laughs) A happy ending. (laughs) Yeah. Which I guess, you know, you could read in a lot of different ways. Like, you know, the Addie that we know still fell in love with Gabe and still had children and still lived her life or whatever. So is that kind of supposed to be an allegory of somebody who wasn't supposed to succeed and didn't have the tools, the resources, the ability Mm. can, you know, ascend that escalator and get lucky and achieve life? I don't know. Like, obviously the movie is heavily laden in themes about class and things of that nature, but we're not really like mad at Addie at the end because it's the Addie that we've known and she's not evil. She just kind of saw a chance and took it because we've been trained to be like, ooh, Red's evil and Red's a narcissist and, you know, Red's leading a rebellion, but she's just fighting for her power back. Right. Yeah. Wow. But the movie ends with a big pan out of the tethereds holding hands across the world. And Jason giving his mom some side eye some more. But that's the end end of the movie. Yeah. And the end of the world is is upon us. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's not the end of the world. I don't know. It's quite a different kind of apocalypse that I think we're used to seeing in films. (laughs) Yeah. But to close it out, I have this quote from Jordan Peele himself. Like when asked about the themes of the film. And I think he puts it, obviously, as the person who made it very succinctly. One of the central themes in us is that we can do a good job collectively of ignoring the ramifications of privilege. I think it's the idea that we feel like we deserve comes, you know, at the expense of someone else's freedom or joy. The biggest disservice we can do as a faction with collective privilege, like the United States, is to presume that we deserve it and that it isn't luck that had us born where we're born. For us to have privilege, someone suffers. That's where the tethered connection resonates the most, is that those who suffer and those who prosper are two sides of the same coin. You can never forget that. That's really good. Mm -hmm. Especially that idea of, you know, in order for one person to prosper, you know, that means that somebody else has to be doing the opposite of that Mm -hmm. to kind of like maintain that hierarchy. Yeah. And I like that he kind of zoomed out to put it globally, because I think obviously 
this is like focused in the United States of like, there's a Mm -hmm. 1% and then there's the people that aren't. But then he's putting out as like, collectively us as a country is so much more privileged and has so much more wealth and so much more access and ability than so many other places just in the world generally. So the fact that he was able to zoom that out and it's just like, yeah, like there's not necessarily a demonic version of you underground that wants your life, but you are only able to live this life because someone else is paying that same amount and suffering is profound. Yeah. So final thoughts. I think watching it the first time, which was not yesterday, you know, I was like, it's hard to compare it, right? It's like the same way if you try to compare Hereditary, which I know you haven't seen to Midsummer, they're just different movies. And I think a lot of mm-hmm. people looked at us expecting something like Get Out, which is amazing, but it also holds your hand a lot in terms of, you know, racism is bad and this is what happens and, and all of that kind of stuff where this is much more nuanced about the themes of class. And I think a lot of people were like thinking it was going to be racially themed as well. And obviously there's racial tones, but it's not, you know, Lupita Nyong'o and Jordan Peele both said like, it's not about race. It, it's about class. It's about these other things. It's about privilege. And not, that's not to say those things don't exist in the same conversation as race, because they absolutely do. But I think having the context that I have about, you know, the Hands Across America thing and just reading a little bit more of, you know, his analysis of what it's about just made it a lot more enriching. And I just think Jordan Peele's brilliant at this point when it just comes to horror. I hope he doesn't leave the genre. And I really want to see Candyman now, which I've heard mixed things about. But I think a lot of that has to do with it being a remake or a reboot or a re whatever you want to call it, revamp, requel. I've heard requel before. Requel. Because it's supposed to act like a sequel to the original, but it's also like rebooting its original ideas. Right. Like, Okay, cool. Yeah. I feel like after watching this, I feel much more willing to and kind of excited about watching other films that Jordan Peele has a part in in this genre because I feel like this was a really good movie. And like it kind of had its moments. Like, I didn't like Red's death, but overall really good. And I did appreciate, I think this is the kind of movie also that I think is meant to kind of like sit with you and change maybe over time with how long you sit with it. I'm glad. I like when movies kind of do that. They sit with you and they don't really quite leave you after you're done watching it. And that's one of these. Yeah, 100%. Do we want to say what we're doing next? So just keep an eye on our Instagram. I'm not going to say exactly what we're doing yet, but I will say that we are doing a collaboration. So we're going to be doing some different things, some similar things. So keep an eye out for that at the end of September slash beginning of October. And we're really excited for that. And we hope that you will listen in when the time comes. And we're definitely going to let y'all know on Instagram when you can start preparing because we're going to be covering a lot of movies in a short amount of time in a different way. And you'll find out when and how and why very soon. Yeah. Also, in a general note, we're probably going to start releasing episodes every other week. The school year started back up. The reality of the situation is that Elise and I don't live in the same state anymore. We Mm -hmm. are both educators and... Our schedules are just not as forgiving as they were when we lived a couple yards from one another than when we lived uh, about 250 miles away from one another. So we are just doing our best to keep stuff coming out for you. So we are doing our best to still put stuff out in this new format, but it just makes you miss us more, you know? Distance makes the heart grow fonder. It does. It does. 
but you don't have to miss us too much because you could always follow us on Instagram at the horrors podcast or email us at the horrors podcast at Gmail to give us your thoughts or recommendations or whatever you want. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. Until next time for the horrors. Bye. Bye.